I've never known a room go so quiet so quickly with such little fuss. Members of the Sachs family and distinguished guests all, I want to welcome you to the inaugural Sachs conversation. When Rabbi Lord Sachs of, of blessed memory stepped down as chief rabbi in 2013, the Covenant and Conversation Trust was set up to support and promote his teachings. And he did me the signal honor of asking me to be its chair. For seven years, the trust performed merely a supporting role, for such was the power and influence of Rabbi Sachs's thoughts, writings, and teachings that, frankly, the trustees had little to do. That all changed with his all-too-early death last year. And so the trust reinvented itself. We named itself the Rabbi Sachs Legacy Trust, and most importantly, brought family members on board and has set about its task to ensure that future generations continue to engage and learn from Rabbi Sachs's teachings and ideas, which so successfully spanned the religious and secular worlds. Tonight's conversation is the first public step in fulfilling the trust responsibility, and we're very fortunate to host this inaugural Sachs conversation in this magnificent building. As many of you know, the meticulous renovation of Spencer House was inspired and led by Lord Rothschild. The building is owned on a long lease by RIT Capital Partners PIC, and I'm pleased to acknowledge here this evening Hannah Rothschild, director of RIT, and Jonathan Kestenbaum, one of our trustees, who is RIT's chief operating officer. And our thanks to Lord Rothschild and to Hannah and to Jonathan for making this event happen in this beautiful setting. And I'd now like to ask Lord Rothschild to just come to the podium and say a few words of welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that introduction. We should all feel at home. How many of you can identify that painting which Lord Spencer sold about 15 years ago, sort of King David? Anyhow, we're not here about that. We're here to express really the depths of our feelings for Jonathan Sachs, our friend, mentor, teacher, and a constant source of inspiration. We'll miss him keenly. His legacy survives in his teachings and his writings, and I hardly need to remind you of his many achievements over his lifetime. But I should say, I mean, he was, of course, chief rabbi for more than 20 years, the author of more than 25 books of extraordinary wisdom. And quite apart from his huge contribution to Jewish life, he became a national figure with contributions to BBC Radio's Thought for the Day and writing the Credo column for the Times. He was a wise, gracious, and generous man and I, for one, and I'm sure many of you in this room, for the rest of our lives, will treasure the time that we spent together. I'm delighted that his wife, Elaine, and their children, Joshua, Dina, Angela, and um, where's Alan there? And that you're also here. Your loss is inevitably more profound than ours, but we will do our very best to keep his flame burning brightly. I want to 
illustrate some of Jonathan's qualities through his reactions following a visit to the National Library Project in, in Jerusalem. And he wrote to me afterwards, I'll read you what he said. The role of the drama of the new library should be conceived on the broadest possible canvas. The aim should be that the entire Jewish literary heritage should be available for every Jew throughout the world. This would be for our time what the invention of the alphabet was in Moses' time. A democratization of access to knowledge with all that was entailed for Jewish identity and belonging throughout the ages. You see how wonderfully well he writes. He wondered whether there shouldn't be a global Jewish forum to be held annually involving leading Jewish scholars linked to the regeneration of the National Library. Recognize the importance of the book to the Jewish people, Jonathan wanted to ensure that discussion and interaction between scholars and authors remained vibrant and wholly relevant. And our foundation, Yad Hanadib, hopes to take this idea forward and in his name. I want to look backwards for a minute <clears throat> to Moses Hess in his prophetic book, Roman Jerusalem, which was published more than 150 years ago. He spoke lyrically of the infinite mystery of Jewish survival, unparalleled in the history of mankind, and a community which has faced Jewish enemies in every age, Alexandrians, Greeks, Romans, Asiatics, Africans, barbarians, feudal kings, grand inquisitors, Jesuits, and modern tyrants. But yet somehow the community survived and multiplied and went on to revitalize the parched land of Palestine from the terrible reign of the Turks. Democracy, Jewish genius, and modern science were to be the new triple alliance that would at once save an ancient people and revive an ancient land. <clears throat> but when one thinks about it, in spite of the creation of the State of Israel, the problem hasn't gone away. And I love the way that Jonathan, in his book, Faith in the Future, wrote, and I quote, in contemplating its future pessimism has always prevailed and it's never once come true. Today, in no small measure, thanks to Jonathan's extraordinary contribution to our lives, we face our future with optimism and we thank him for his achievements and much else from the very depth of our hearts. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Rothschild, for those very warm and kind and, and meaningful words. He's mentioned that we are happy to have this evening with us Lady Sachs, Elaine, and, and, and the children, their families. But we have some other distinguished guests I want to welcome. His Grace, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, hot foot from a visit to Egypt, 
who has made a very special effort to be with us today, Lord Carey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Her Excellency, the Ambassador of the State of Israel, Tsipi Hotaveli, Diane Gelly, and many other Rabbanim, representatives from Clarence House from number 10, and present President Ari Berman from Yeshiva University. And let me also at this moment thank the sponsors of this evening's event, Lord and Lady Carms, who are here with us, and Mimi and George Perlman, who are watching us online from the States. Tonight also sees the launch of the power of ideas, words of faith and wisdom, a fantastic collection of Rabbi Sachs's broadcasts, articles, and speeches not previously published before in book form. His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, in the foreword that he's written for the book, says, this volume demonstrates once again Rabbi Sachs's unique capacity for interpreting the present and predicting the future through a profound understanding of the past. Thanks to you to Ian Metcalf and the team at Hod of Faith for working on this with the Trust's excellent professional team. And thanks to our very generous sponsors, you will each be given a copy of this new book when you leave this evening. I now want to introduce tonight's conversation and welcome Tony Blair and Matthew Dancona. Tony served as Prime Minister from 1997 to 2007, the only leader in his party's history to win three consecutive general elections. Since leaving office, he spent most of his time working on three areas, supporting governments to deliver effectively for their people, working for peace in the Middle East, and countering extremism. He has established the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change to work on some of the most difficult challenges in the world today, including how the center ground of politics can renew itself with practical policy solutions. I was very fortunate to be president of the Board of Deputies when Tony was prime minister, and not only saw his deep understanding of the concerns of the Jewish community, but also the deep and mutual respect that he and Rabbi Sachs had for each other. You're very welcome here, Tony, with Cherie, and may I be the first to say it publicly, you told us that you'd had a new grandchild this afternoon, so mazel tov from everyone in this room. one of these strange coincidences which in due course may come together, Lord and Lady Kestenbaum had a grandson this afternoon, a granddaughter, a grandson, so muzzletops all around. Engaging with Tony in conversation will be Matthew Dancona, one of Britain's most respected and insightful commentators on politics, culture and society. He's an editor and partner at Tortoise Media and an award-winning columnist for the Evening Standard. His most recent book, Identity, Ignorance and Innovation, Why the Old Politics is Useless and What to Do About It, was published earlier this year by Hodder and Stoughton. There was also great mutual respect between Matthew and Rabbi Sachs, and in the book, Matthew expresses his deep sorrow at not having been able to send the manuscript to Rabbi Sachs for his wisdom, guidance and erudition. Tony, please come to the stage to deliver your opening remarks, and Matthew will join you and pick up on the conversation when you have finished. Thank 
Thank you so much, uh, Henry and Elaine. It's a real honour to, to give this opening lecture in the series, and to you and to Joshua and Dina Gila, my very warmest good wishes, um, and to your nine, nine grandchildren, right? Yeah, so um, she, Jonathan was just reminding of one of the first, uh, Jonathan Kestenbaugh was just reminding me of one of the first occasions that Jonathan Sachs and I had a chance really to, to speak together. And um, as you've just learned, he's got his granddaughter, new granddaughter. We have a new grandson. Uh, we're working on what this may mean for the future. Um, <laughs> but he, he reminded me that next month is the 26th anniversary of Yitzhak Rabin's assassination, and that Jonathan and I, one of the first conversations we, we had in depth together was flying out to the, the funeral, where he just gave me the most wonderful exposition and lesson in biblical scholarship, and it made a, made a deep, deep impression on me, and really, I think, was the beginning of the foundation of our, our friendship. So, um, the Sachs conversation a great idea for a series commemorating Jonathan, and as I say, an absolute honor for me to give the inaugural lecture. It so completely typifies the man whose life we celebrate and who made such an impact on our lives. Because of course, conversation was Jonathan's speciality. Open-minded, eager to exchange views, bringing those in discord into dialogue, seeking answers, but always with a deep inner humility and willingness to acknowledge the other and their point of view. It's a good starting point in discussion of what Jonathan represented and of the influence his teaching continues to exert. In a world often dominated by debate within the frequently poisonous confines of social media, his calm reason, cerebral but accessible manner, and intellectually curiosity reminds us of how conversation, even over the most sensitive subjects, should be conducted. The power of ideas, words of faith and wisdom, this collection Henry referred to of Jonathan's prolific array of speeches, broadcasts and lectures, illustrates both the range of his output and most telling his ability to dive into profound and delicate worldly questions and yet bring spiritual clarity and new dimensions of understanding to them. He was not a politician and eschewed party politics, but he never hesitated to enter the small p political arena when he felt it was demanded by the seriousness of the issue or the danger of keeping silent. His polemic against anti-Semitism remains one of the finest explanations of why it happens, why it matters to Jews and non-Jews alike, and why it requires early confrontation to avoid catastrophe. But even here, his case is made with passion for sure, but also logic and reason and philosophical depth. For this lecture, I reread some of his books and the anthology published today. What's interesting studying the writing is, as you would expect, the coherence of thought, but also what I feel will be an enduring relevance. Jonathan was for many of us a teacher, guide, and mentor, as well as our friend. But it's the teacher role which for me stands out. He was a Jewish rabbi 
but he was also a rabbi for the universe. His teaching grounded in Judaism, but somehow never constrained by it. In particular, I identify three elements which seem to me great lessons for our time, but also for any time. First, he is well known for his brilliant exposition of why the we must come before the I. However, the importance for me of the way he draws this distinction is that he does so on explicitly moral grounds and does so recognizing that the competitive and selfish side to human nature is not something which can be crushed. The competitive and the compassionate, the selfish and the unselfish coexist in humankind. Our job is not to believe that the I can be eliminated, but rather that by conscious effort, we make a moral choice to relegate it. The again, small p consequence for politics of this is quite crucial. It means that political ideology, which rests on the assumption that collective power can abolish individualism, is fatally flawed. Political decisions based on a belief there are scientific answers to all our problems are falsely predicated. We need, ultimately, to make a moral decision. So whether it's dealing with COVID or climate change, the we should come forcibly into play. But it is a choice we make to put aside the purely self-interested approach, a choice conditioned by the covenant which binds us together as humanity, not simply a transaction to be negotiated or amended as we think fit. Seeing it in this way gives our decisions the power and the strength to stick, even when the going is tough, even when the price seems too high. And in the realm of technology innovation, that great engine of change transforming the way we work, live, think, and interact with each other, this we as a moral covenant prevents us turning technology into a god and obliges us instead to place science at the service of humanity, not be ruler of it. Secondly, in an era where parts of the West have turned their back on religion, certainly of the organized kind, and yet in other parts of the world, religious belief main, remains foundational, Jonathan taught us that coexistence is inherent to God's plan. So he makes the case both for religious belief in its centrality, against abusing religion by making faith, any faith, a badge of identity in opposition to those who do not share it. There is, of course, a consistency between his emphasis on the we, which transcends boundaries of self or nation, and the view that those of different faiths have a duty to reach out and treat the other as of equal value to themselves. The dignity of difference, written in the aftermath of 9-11, remains an extraordinary clarion call for interfaith harmony. It does so marshalling arguments which are not only plainly necessary for our security and stability, but it does so also in theological terms. He shows how critical for all faiths is the belief in neighborliness, respect and care for the stranger or the sojourner, as the Bible calls it, of treating those others as you would have them treat you. In this way, Jonathan rescues faith from fundamentalism, doctrine from dogma, the spiritual from the temporal. 
He recognises that none of this means that your own faith is downgraded or melded into one with others, but that there is a universal essence in faith which is worth preserving, and that this combination of diversity alongside a common belief in God is healthy and worthy. In this manner, he demonstrates that religious conviction need not be in contradiction to shared humanity, but can rather be a route to making it real. I believe this teaching will be of vast significance to later generations, trying to make sense of how in a globalizing, open world, you stay true to your own faith without excluding or disrespecting those of a different faith. Thirdly, by rooting his teaching in the Torah, that most ancient and historic of documents, Jonathan explains in vivid terms the complex relationship between tradition and modernity. I loved discussing with him the stories in the Torah, marveled at his capacity to give them contemporary relevance. From him, I saw the Exodus as a supreme masterclass in leadership learnt that Israel meant to strive with God after Jacob spent the night wrestling with the Lord, understood that every story from Cain and Abel, Joseph and his brothers, to the exile to Babylon, from the book of Ether to the preaching of Ezekiel, had a meaning and a wisdom to which we should pay heed today. And I think this is so vital. Our world is one whose chief characteristic is the scope and the scale and the speed of change. Everything around us disrupted and transformed. Now we can disagree on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think we can agree on the fact of it. The biggest risk then becomes that we reject the rest lessons of our history because we cannot think them meaningful for our present or future. Yet the experience of our ancestors, the traditions they ascribe to, the values they learnt through the disciplining hand of God, need to be studied. The physical context of those ancient lives may be completely alien to us. The attitudes and practice is utterly quaint, sometimes even repellent to us now. But the struggles of human nature, the search for enlightenment, are not. Obedience to moral precept, duty to those less fortunate than ourselves, humble contrition and acknowledgement of wrongdoing, the sin of pride and the inevitability of correction, or what the Greeks would call hubris followed by nemesis. The teaching may come through old scrolls and texts from thousands of years ago, but we can see clearly that modernity has not erased their power. That was the very unusual gift Jonathan had to explain the past to the living and to show that it should be treated with respect, not as tradition alone, but as wisdom passed from one age to another. Finally, a thread that runs throughout all of this is his role as a unifier. Someone capable of taking seemingly opposite concepts and through intellectual creativity and imagination, show them to be compatible and even complementary. If you believe as I do, precisely because of this huge accelerating change, that we will look for ways of reconciliation between community and individual, spirituality and religious difference, the world that was and the world that is and will be, there could be no better guide than Rabbi Sachs. I once 
asked Jonathan from whence he derived this great desire to unify and overcome division. Possibly from my experience in trying to lead the Jewish community, he replied dryly. <laughs> we used to joke about who had the hardest leadership job, me or him. <laughs> but I also used to say to him that it was that insistence on holding opinions, expressing them and debating them, that was such a great Jewish virtue. The Jewish mind is restless, inquiring, striving with God not to defeat him, but to stretch the frontiers of human endeavor. And in that sense, Jonathan was quintessentially Jewish. But whilst he's rightly revered amongst Jewish communities the world over, I regard him as my rabbi too. And I know that he will continue to inspire succeeding generations, Jewish or not. So what was the essence of his genius? Well, in the book, The Power of Ideas, which is a collection of his speeches, if I can find the right passage, the speech he gave in 1991 when he, he became chief rabbi, and he, he quoted, and you, you're going to have to forgive me, my pronunciations are going to be really bad here, so uh, you've got to be <laughs> extremely generous. Akavia ben... Mahalalel. So he said, and Jonathan quoted, reflect on three things you will not transgress, go wrong, lose your way. Da meyahin bata, know from where you came. Ulian ata holech, and where you are going. Vilifne miata atid liten, din vesheshbon, and know before whom you will have to give an account. It's the toughest part of the speech, that. <laughs> so he quoted this, and then he, he wrote something I think is so insightful. He said, for a moment we lived for the moment and forgot what the past should have taught us, what the future consequences would be, and we forgot there's always an accounting, a moral price to pay. And he said, all this arisen arose because of a failure of imagination. We can go astray simply because of a failure of imagination. A failure of historical imagination, we forget where we come from. A failure of prophetic imagination, we forget where we're traveling to. Or a failure of spiritual imagination, we forget before whom we stand. The truth about Jonathan is that there was never any failure of imagination with him not historical, prophetic, or spiritual. And that's the reason that extraordinary power of imagination is the reason why I didn't merely like him as a person. I admired him deeply as a teacher. And that teaching, I believe, will live on long, long after the physical body has perished. Thank you. Tony, thank you so much for that, and uh, I think uh, we can all agree that you couldn't really be a better person to, to kind of uh, summarise what we remember 
um, about Rabbi Sachs, but also what we hope for the future from his teaching. And, and while I was listening to you, I was very, I, I have to say, I, I took a sort of internal stroll back down memory lane to the early 90s when I first met you and I first met him. And with both of you, I had a kind of feeling that something was up, um, so to speak. And, and what you shared was uh, a very uh, clear-sighted determination to put values into practice. And I just wonder if you can take us back to that moment and how, as, as it were, you know, in your early encounters with him, uh, perhaps even in opposition and, and then as prime minister, he, he informed that side of your politics. Yes, yeah, so you know, so see, a, a lot of what I used to do with Jonathan was just frankly learn from him because he, he as you can see, by the way, it's, it's absolutely excellent, the uh, anthology, for, I don't know who, who put it all together, but it's fantastically well done. Um, and you see the range of his scholarship. So one of the things I used to just learn from him. But the other thing that was very important was this stress he had on values, not in the sense that humanity always lives up to its, to its better nature, because obviously it doesn't, and, and frequently it falls short, and frequently we all do, and, and politicians often particularly. But the importance was to say you should at least be aiming for something higher than merely you know, the mathematical ticking off of policies done and manifestos obeyed and so on. That, and that was a, you know, that was a very um, important and, and telling concept for me. So even though, again, you know, I'd be the first to admit that we didn't in, in always do that, of course not. And often we, we let ourselves and others down. That's, that's natural in, in politics and in life. But I always found that an immensely valuable instruction. I mean, it, it, it's, it's fascinating because it, it, what you're talking about is, it seems to me, um, fundamental to the practice of politics as it should be practiced, um, but perhaps something that has been lost sight of, which is that you need to have a framework of values, um, which, as you say, you will necessarily not adhere to all the time because the business of politics is, is turbulent and scrappy and, you know, in, and, and, and so on. But what he believed in passionately, I think, um, and remains so true today, and perhaps more, you know, more relevant today, is that, that there should be that uh, that that system of values. And I'm wondering. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a huge question, but um, it, it, is it lost? Um, and if so, how do we get it back? Well, I think the the, the problem is politics is is conducted in a very short-term context yeah. today, and. You know, I do think social media is a bit of a plague, really, oh. for, for, for politics in this in this respect, because you know politicians tend to you just it, there's, there's such a um, a weight of pressure of opinion on you, and often not in a very um, thought out way. The the importance of values and having a set of beliefs that you hold as a community or as a country is that it they're they're they're, they're like. They're, they're like the sort of line that runs through everything, that keeps everything with some coherence, even when all around you is tactics and, you know, difficult events and crises and scandals. And, you know, it, I always say to people, the interesting thing about, about when, when you 
look back on, on your time as, a, as prime minister is, you know, when I think of the things that worried me at the time, when you, you know, I mean, everyone who was in office or in any position of authority, you know, you've got your, your crises and your scandals and your events and things clatter about and collide with each other and so on. But when you end, the residue that's left is the only thing that matters, and that's actually all about whether you, in fact, ever improved anyone's life. You know, that is the thing that, that is left in the end. And I think if you, if J Jonathan's point was that if you had that strong set of values, if in other words you're committing to things as a moral covenant and not just as a, as a policy, then it allows you to hold, you, you've got a much better chance of getting to the end of that time and finding something that's really worth holding on to. And I think that's a really important thing and I think it's partly lost today because it's just the way politics is conducted. And then I think if it becomes very divisive, I think, I mean, I think the divisions I see in a, I know we've got some of our friends here in the United States, um, I think the divisions in American politics today are troubling. Mm. Uh, I hope that we avoid that here. I think there was a point at which we weren't avoiding it and very nearly tipped into it. Um, but hopefully we can. But the point is, it should be one of the values that you hold dear in democracy, that you do respect the people you disagree with, that you know you regard them as opponents and not enemies. So this is really, really important. And that, that's what Jonathan, his, this is why I found him such an a, a effective advocate, not, not for any particular brand of politics in the party sense, but for politics as necessarily being rooted in values. So, I mean, you've just raised such an interesting question, which is, as you said in your remarks, that he was someone who was by temperament and ambition and, indeed, in effect, a unifier. That was fundamental to what he wanted to do and did. Um, we live now in an age where the default setting is polarisation. I mean, the, the, the instinct, the impulse is instantly to um, resist any form of ecumenism, you know, secular ecumenism in politics, I mean. Um, and you'll, as you've hinted, you know, social media has played a, a huge part in that, but it's not the only factor. So, um, you know, as, as pupils of, of, uh, of Rabbi Sachs, what can we learn from him to try at least to, to bring the sides together so that, as it were, politics is not just a shouting match or a uh, digitally weaponized pub fight, which it often seems to be. Yeah, so I mean, the dignity of difference was his attempt to do this from a religious perspective. And by the way, it's, it's, it's fabulous to see um, Justin here and um, is George here as, yeah. Um, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the former Archbishop of Canterbury and, you know, Jonathan was someone who really reached out across the religious divide. And I think, you know, the, he, he did that. It was difficult to do because there were people who, would obviously, who were obviously critical when he wanted to reach out and say, well, look, there are different paths to God. And, you know, people would say, well, yeah, but no, are you disrespecting our own, you know, our, our own faith? And it was, it was tough at times, I think, to do that. But he explained what he meant by it, which is not that you, you give up your own faith, you, you, you stop adhering to your own faith, but that you, you recognize 
that in difference there is a dignity. And therefore, you know, you could carry that lesson very effectively into politics, but it's not much in evidence at the moment because people, in fact, want to play with identity in politics in a very negative way. And he didn't want to play with religious identity in a negative way. On the contrary, he wanted people to be, you know, content with, their, with, with, with what they are in religious terms, but recognize that part deep within their religious belief, if properly expressed, was a desire to reach out and treat others with respect and, and, and equal respect. And this was, this is a principle you could apply to politics very easily today. And the difficulty is that, you know, I think the great, one of the great ironies of 21st century politics is that the very moment when the solutions to the world's problems have, have been, never been more practical, I mean, they are practical in the end, <laughs> you know, the world's got, got a bad dose of ideology. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a shame because, you know, in politics, I found that every time those things got in the way. You know, people just thinking, well, I can't work with these people because they're from a different political tribe. Or, I mean, you know, it's crazy stuff. Or I, this solution may work, but it doesn't accord with my ideological predisposition, and therefore I don't want it. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, that's what—that's the interesting thing—is that you know, from the off, your politics was the politics of the big tent, coalition building, and you know, based on very clear, very clearly stated values. But there was, a, well, there was a, the door was always not just ajar, but open to, yeah. to, to new people, and that was, in a sense, the defining characteristic of New Labour. Um, what's interesting about politics now, not just in this country, is that it is defined almost by exclusion, or at the very least by the attribution of blame. Mm -hmm. That what you do as a populist politician is you, uh, you almost shelve praxis and practicality and say, look, the reason these things aren't happening are because of this group over here, or the media, or the judges, or whatever it may be. So the question is, how, how do we achieve the lift to get back to that politics that at least has, as part of its temperament, as part of its inclination, a reaching out across divides. I think when people realise that that, that, that that form of divisiveness is actually damaging to them and their, their own lives and interests. And I don't know that we've reached that stage yet, but I think we will. Um, I mean, Jonathan, I think, once said, he said something like, Anger can expose a problem, but it doesn't provide a solution. I think it was something like that. And the point is, when you're conducting politics of, of blame, and one group of people want to, uh, to be victims of another group of people, I mean, it's just a totally counterproductive thing. And, and it, by the way, it's never how you get on in life, really. <laughs> you, you get on by working with people by, you know, the, the creative and imaginative process yielding results. So I think that in the end, the hope is that people realize it's dangerous and stop it. The risk is that it becomes even more entrenched. And it worries me sometimes, I mean, it did when, you know, frankly, the Labour Party was under its previous leadership, that, you know, you end up, if you end up seeing your, your opponents in that light, you, you, you ultimately, you do undermine democracy because you delegitimize them as political actors. And I think that's very dangerous when that happens. So you need to have 
both a, a clear sense of distinction then, um, you know, you're not the same as your opponents, but that has to be leavened by, a, so to speak, a principle of charity. Yeah, and also, but also a, a realistic appreciation of the way the world is. I mean, I used to have this conversation sometimes when we sit around with, I mean, Henry was kind enough to mention that I, I won three elections, but sometimes when we'd sit there with the, with, the, with the guys working out how to win the next election, someone would say, well, what are the dividing lines? And I'd say, why don't we start with what, what we actually want to do? <laughs> we can get to the dividing lines. But you know, let's not just pick a dividing line. Um, so the, the best thing is, the, 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 the most important thing to realize is that there aren't, there aren't many of these issues that aren't faced by most developed countries, and people are trying to find their way through them. And, you know, everyone knows what the problem is, which is that you, you know, you're trying to make government more efficient, you're trying to make public services deliver, you're trying to create the right atmosphere for business and the environment now with the problem, for example, of climate change. You're trying to make a huge transition of your economy. So it's going to take a massive transition. Now, you need a plan for that. It's got to be worked out. But let me tell you, it's infinitely better if there's some shared party political acceptance of it. Because the worst thing that can happen is when policy yo-yos between different people. So when I came into power in 1997, and you know, this used to cause a lot of stress to parts of my party, but I used to say, look, there are things that Margaret Thatcher did we're going to leave in place. And they all go, oh, no. Really. <laughs> I said, yeah, no, yeah, yeah because... You know, actually, the country wasn't in a great shape at the end of the 70s, and things had to, to change. But so our job is not to go in and reverse everything they did. Our job is actually to re rebuild the public realm, which is maybe where you, you could be critical, right? So but the point is, there was a certain constancy of policy that let the country have roughly, in the terms of the private sector, you know, fairly long degree of stability and predictability in policy. And that's important if you want a country to succeed. I mean, the work I do with governments around the world, we have teams of people, we go, they go and live and work alongside the president or prime minister's team, and they help them deliver change, in mainly in Africa, but also outside Africa too. And, you know, I, I, I talk and engage with the presidents or prime ministers, but here's the thing that you realize. It takes quite a long time to change a country significantly. And at least for the better. You can change it for the worse quite quickly. <laughs> uh, but to change it for the better requires a solidity of policy over time. And those countries that do best are where, you know, there may be a change of government, but the thing's not are just a, a riot from one side to the other. And, and this is, so in the end, you know, I always say to people, democracy has, has got a form, which is you vote, but it's got a spirit, which is a sense that you're part of one community, ultimately, even if you disagree. And it's an incredibly important principle, that, because you, you, you give it up. And it's not just that, that you, you, you could undermine your democracy, it's also that your government becomes less efficient because they're <laughs> one lot coming and one lot of instructions, the next got a lot coming and everything's scrapped. Now, you know, in today's world, it's an inherently implausible everything the previous people did was wrong. You said several times that he had a, a very strong sense of politics as a small p, which I think is right. And part of that was to make very clear demands of the political world and the demos. Um, 
But we look at politics today, and oftentimes it, it, it looks like a branch of the entertainment industry, rather than, as it were... I can't a, think what you're referring to. I, 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 it, it just tumbled out, you know. Um, and I, I am intrigued, you know, you, as it were, using what I hope we'll start to call Saxian principles, um, how you rebuild that public sphere. Because at the moment, it seems to me to be very, very badly rusted through. Okay, well, this is, I mean, I'm, maybe we get political, a bit political here, but forgive me if I'll try and not make it too sort of um, angular, but the question is whether you've got, in, in politics today in the West, you've got a supply problem or a demand problem. Now, a lot of people have come to think that you've got a demand problem for what I would call loosely centre-left, centre-right. You know, in other words, there's a, there's a reasonable consensus at a certain point. It's not to say you don't pursue radical policy, yeah. but it's within a, you know, you, you do not regard your opponents as enemies. You, you, you're trying to, you're striving to do the best for your country. And my view is that it is a supply problem that it's because politics, particularly because activists within political parties pull their parties further to the left or further to the right, I don't think you've got a demand problem. I still think that most elections are won actually from the centre. But the question is how you deal with the supply problem in circumstances where all over the Western world, traditional political parties have got a bad dose of ideology. Now, by the way, a lot of them in our system, in the American system and in the British system, it's quite hard for anything new to start, right? Because it's just, in the American system, I think people have tried from time to time and sort of given up and thought, well, that's just it. It's sort of pile-driven into the political landscape. But, you know, if we were to take Israel, for example, uh, you know, <laughs> That's a system that allows for, you know, many different parties, uh, let's say. Uh, um, but in Britain, in Britain, we're not as, not like the American system, but it's still very hard to displace the two parties. But what that means is that if people capture either of those two parties, it's a very hard job to wrench them, wrench them back because, you know, they, they are, it's, you're a, it's, you don't have the discipline effect on one of the two main parties of something credible new starting. See, the discipline effect on the Labour Party in the 80s was when the SDP and then the Liberal Alliance got off the ground. You know, those of us who were in Parliament at the time as young MPs were thinking, we'd better do something about this, because otherwise, <laughs> you know, they could, they could displace us. But many systems that... That, that was rare for Britain, and it doesn't often happen. By the way, one of the things I used to talk about with, with, with Jonathan was that it was, we used to talk about Israeli politics, but just in the sense of, you know, it's, I mean, it's tough politics, right? I mean, those guys really go at it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but, but one of the things I, I used to, 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 to talk about was the difference when you, when you were a, 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 a leader going to see the Israeli prime minister, a leader from, out, from outside of Israel, and you know, you'd go into the meeting and the two leaders would be like this and you'd have your officials down the side. 
And if you're a leader outside, you know, British Prime Minister, your officials will sit there and they kind of nod along to what you're saying, you know, as if these were enormous words of wisdom, whether they were or they weren't. You know. The Israeli Prime Minister, you know, they'd be, no, 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 no. <laughs> and, uh, but it was interesting, recently I talked to an Arab, um, an Arab minister who'd met uh, Israeli counterparts, because one of the things we work on in the Institute is, is a rapprochement between Israel and the Arab world, and we're very keen on the Abraham Accords and all of that, but they were describing their, their, their meeting with the Israeli minister somewhat in these terms, where you know the officials were perfectly prepared to intervene and point out that the words of the minister were not that sage. Um, uh, <laughs> and I said, well, that must have been a bit of a surprise for you, because, of course, in the Arab world, deferential. And he said, uh, yeah, it was a surprise, he said, but it was also an education. And I thought it was interesting that, but that, that sort of element of, um, you know, Israel and how its politics, despite the fact that they're at one level incredibly divisive and harsh, the country has managed to continue to make progress because there is a core of things that hold people together and because they're prepared to debate, you know, vivaciously <laughs> what the right thing to do is. And, and in the end, that is a strength and not a weakness in a democracy, provided that core, which I think is a profound attachment to Israel's security, remains, remains in common. You spoke uh, more than once in your remarks about wisdom. Um, and it struck me that one of the, um, what, one of the pathologies of, of our times is that actually wisdom is undervalued. Um, not through any kind of conscious process, but because we are constantly bombarded with digital information. Um, we are constantly encouraged to engage in a sort of transactional process rather than to use the word that both of you use, the covenant. Mm -hmm. And, and therefore, I mean, one of the things that's so energizing about tonight and, and, and everything that tonight represents is that it's a celebration of wisdom. But I wonder how you, you, you kind of build on that, because the idea that politics is, you know, politics is not just the kind of enactment of wisdom. We, we, we know it's a much more practical question than that. But nonetheless, politics that, 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 is, that, is, that is infused by wisdom is a lot better and I don't, I don't in, the, in the current political landscape, it doesn't seem to me, or indeed the current social landscape, it doesn't seem to me that wisdom is playing a very significant or salient part. Yeah, but I think, you see, for, 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 for wisdom to play a part, people need to be, you know, they, they need to be, open to, to learning from others' experience and, and, and insights. And part of the problem with, with the way social media does push politics is that people think they just pick up their own wisdom and insights from you know, the, the nonsense that, that, that they read. And I think that, you know, it's interesting that my, my <laughs> 
my 21-year-old son was saying to me the other day, because we were debating various, various issues, and he said to me, um, Daddy, he said, you're mm, you really not understanding the way the world works. He said, <laughs> he said let me tell you about today. I feel work. your pain. Yeah, yeah. I... <laughs> but then what he said was actually quite interesting, and it was an actual insight. He said, um, you see, he said, I know what you're saying. Here it is. This is what you should do, da-da-da-da-da-da. He said, but you've got to understand, in today's world, he said, there are facts and there are feelings. Yeah. And in today's world, he said, this thing, feelings, he said, they're more important than the facts. So he said, you go in there and you're just talking to people about facts. <laughs> they say, yeah, but I've got my feelings, so there it is. Yeah. And wisdom should teach you that in the end, facts are facts. But mm, you've got to be open to, to, to learning. And that's, that's why, that, that was the great thing about, the, the thing I used to love about the Jonathan's interpretation of the biblical stories, because... Because they, you know, you can, you can read the Torah and just, or the, or the Bible and just think, well, these are just interesting, you know, it's an interesting part of my culture, but it doesn't say anything to me. Whereas he would say, no, there is some wisdom in, inherent in all that. Despite all the, the different contexts, there's an actual wisdom that you should learn from, you know, and... That was, that was the great thing about, about, uh, about him. And, and, but that wisdom, you, you can only learn from the wisdom if your mind's open to it, if your mind is prepared to, to you know, garner from the experience of others and from the realities that they have, have had to deal with, if you're prepared to, to garner from that some real lessons about how you, you live life and how you approach things like politics. Because, you see, I, th I think you knew all along that there was a battle between facts and feelings and that a lot of what you did and a lot of what Lord Sachs understood was that facts and feelings are, are always part of the deal and that they meet in values and wisdom. So I suppose my final question to you is, how do we get them knitted back together again? So they're not so um, opposed as they absolutely are in contemporary political culture. I think, you, curiously, you bring them together by recognizing they are different things. <laughs> In other words, you can't bring them together by pretending they're the so same. You can't, yeah, yeah, you can't. Right. And that's why it's important to, 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 to do it underpinned by those values that you, you really hold our, our core and not to be traded, right? And I think it, it's, not a, it's not something that people are unwilling to do, but I think there are very few people, and this is the gift that, that Jonathan had, of explaining to people why this is so important. You see, one of the things, you, you know, I, I found so valuable about him was this... You know what it's like when you had a great teacher. The great teacher wouldn't just tell you, right, here are the following you know, things about history and you've got to go learn them. They would explain it to you. They would explain it to you in a way that made sense of the facts and the feelings. And I think you know, that's why you need great teachers today, both in the religious sphere and even in the political sphere as well, where people, 
where people are prepared to, to listen and to open their minds and to think about things in a, in a different way. And I, I ultimately think that, especially, you know, for, for, for our modern societies and where, you know, I would say that the, the new generation is certainly less religiously inclined. Um, it would be a shame if in that, that sense of spirit, the importance of spirituality got lost. And again, one of the things that he, he did was to be able to e express in a, in a really pers per persuasive way why religious faith was important and why if it's if it came from the right point of humility and from the right soul as it were it it, it was immensely liberating and enriching and and that's why the whole of his work around this concept of the the other and how you reach out to the other was was based on a belief that you couldn't properly do that unless it was rooted in something intrinsic to you as a matter of faith and not just a matter of, of practical invention. Sadly, Tony, we've come to the end of our time. I, I have about 10 other questions I want to ask <laughs> Sorry you. Sorry about that. I, I realized uh, today that the first interview I did with you is in 1994, which is probably best that we neither of us dwell upon. But, <laughs> but, um, uh, I Who did badly, me or you? I mean, I just, uh, no, 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 no. You, you, you did great. It's just so long ago. Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, um, but I, I wanted to say thank you, and also I think we can all agree that um, in discussing wisdom, the legacy of uh, Rabbi Lord Sachs, and the role of teaching, that that you yourself are a, a real archetype of the person that keeps thinking keeps reading, keeps talking to people, keeps an open mind, and keeps leading, and embodies that wisdom, and, and you, have, um, you have done him proud this evening. So thank you very much. privilege to invite Elaine to invite Lady Sachs to come and, and give a formal vote of thanks to you both. Good evening. I do want to thank the Right Honourable Tony Blair and Matthew Dancona so much for so graciously agreeing to take part in this inaugural Sachs conversation. I know that everyone here will agree it has been a most fascinating evening. You are both old friends, we've known you so long, and I know that my husband would have appreciated your words as much as I did. It was really personal and profound and uh, moved me deeply, thank you. Of course, special thanks to Lord Rothschild and to Hannah Rothschild, and to our old and dear friend, Lord Kestenbaum, for all you've done to enable us to use Spencer House this evening. A big thank you to Lord and Lady Calms, together with Mimi and George Perlman, for sponsoring the event this evening. And of course, to the trustees 
and professional team of the Rabbi Sachs Legacy Trust. They have all been working tirelessly and devotedly with great sensitivity over the past year. This has been a very emotional year, not helped by all the COVID limitations. And I want to thank you all here in the hall and those of you watching at home online for your warm friendship and great support. Thank you all. Elaine, thank you for that very moving and emotional vote of thanks. I've heard myself saying thank you so much this evening, and I'm afraid I haven't finished. In one of his wonderful essays in Amachzorim, the prayer books for our Jewish festivals, in fact, in the one for Sukkot, for Tabernacles, only recently ended, he asks, what does prayer mean for a Jew? And he says, Descartes said, cogito ergo, so I think, therefore I am. A Jew says, I thank Therefore, I am. So as a Jew, I want to thank you all for attending, either physically here or online. I want to thank the wonderful team at Spencer House, led by Chris Storworthy, for their professionalism and attention to detail in the build-up of this event. This is the start of a series of initiatives by the Rabbi Sachs Legative Trust to mark Rabbi Sachs's Yatzat, the first anniversary of his death, which this year falls on the 25th and 26th of October. On that day, Jewish communities and organizations around the world will be participating in a global day of learning called Communities in Conversation. What else could it be called when we're talking about Rabbi Sachs, specifically to engage in Rabbi Sachs's teachings? And more details of how you and your communities can be involved can be found on our website, www.rabbisachs.org. He left us with many blessings, one of which was his remarkable canon of written work. The paperback version of his outstanding book, Morality, Restoring the Common Good in Divided Times, featuring a new foreword by the Archbishop of Canterbury, was published just a few weeks ago. Studies in Spirituality, a weekly reading of the Jewish Bible, also came out for the new Torah cycle that has just begun. I mentioned earlier the new book, The Power of Ideas. For those present physically present here this evening. I'm sorry to those of you watching online. On your way downstairs to the drinks reception, please collect a copy, one per family group. For those watching online, please visit your local bookshop or order online. <laughs> I must thank the Trust's outstanding professional team of Joanna, Dan and Debbie, whose commitments... <laughs> whose commitments to the aims of this trust are, are second to none. Rabbi Sachs knew that he could depend on them when he was alive, and we know that we can continue to do so. My final thanks to our, our, our wonderful speakers and to you all for joining us on this special evening to remember a truly special individual, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. What you said, Tony, about the values that he represented and that he propounded will have resonated with every one of us. As he'd often said to me, for concerns of the Jewish community, we can't rely on numbers. It's our values which will stand us in good stead forever. And, and you both understood that and concentrated on it in your conversation. Each of us present here or watching online misses him enormously, none more so than the family. But it is the duty of all of us to ensure that his legacy lives on 
for the good of us all and for the good of our community and the good of society in general. And may his blessing, may his memory, forgive me, may he give the blessing to us all, but may his memory be a blessing to us all. And, and thank you again for being here. I would ask you please to remain seated while Mr. and Mrs. Blair and Matthew Dancona leave the room and come downstairs to the drinks reception and then please follow us and don't forget to collect your books on the way. Thank you all very, very much.